Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. A few weeks ago, we talked about how long a paragraph should be, and now today we're going to talk about how long a sentence should be. And I'm going to give you a way to remember the difference between the two incredibly tricky spellings of the word cord. This first segment is by Bonnie Mills. My dad has a memorable poster in his bathroom, a diagram of a ridiculously long sentence by Marcel Proust. It's from his masterpiece, Remembrance of Things Past, also translated as In Search of Lost Time. And it starts like this. Their honor precarious, their liberty provisional, lasting only until the discovery of their crime, their position unstable, dot, dot, dot. Blah, blah, blah. I've examined it numerous times over the last two decades, but I have yet to finish wading through all 958 words. At 150 words longer than this entire segment, the sentence is just unreadable. Believe me, I've tried to stick with it till the end, but it's impossible. I have to applaud Proust for being able to keep everything straight in that sentence because he sure used a lot of semicolons, commas, clauses, and other tricks to lengthen it. I guess French literary geniuses didn't take advantage of copy editors back then. Well, I'm going to suck it up and be the first to trim that monstrous sentence. Here we go. Their honor precarious, their sentence too long, period. But oh no, now my honor is precarious. My crime has been discovered. Those seven words are an incomplete sentence known as a sentence fragment. It has no verb. Do you think Proust ever wrote one of those? Mm, Probably not. All this Proust talk is making me hungry for a Madeleine, a small shell-shaped cake that has a starring role in In Search of Lost Time. I think we should go in search of the perfect length for a sentence. The long and the short of it is this. If you stuff in too many things, you'll get an overly long sentence. If you leave out a subject, verb, or necessary object, you'll be stuck with a fragment. Proust's enormous sentence is an anomaly, but long sentences certainly haven't disappeared. These days, plenty of meandering sentences roam through manuscripts. These behemoths suffer from too many which, that, and who clauses, an overabundance of commas and semicolons, at least a few cases of and or but, and several sets of m-dashes. When your readers try to wade through such a sentence, they become lost amid clauses and commas, and they give up before the sentence is finished. Your readers are following a path you've laid out for them, so don't try to be a turbo guide and make them traipse along too many side streets. They'll become exhausted and collapse. On the other hand, you don't want to whisk readers along too quickly with too many incomplete sentences, either. They'll feel as if they've missed something. Fragments call attention to themselves. You don't need to avoid them at all costs, but if you overdo it, you'll annoy your readers. Your tour group doesn't like feeling fatigued and frustrated, so you have to morph into a better tour guide. Plan your excursion carefully and plot out a manageable route. Your trip's core should consist mostly of medium-sized sentences. Budget for a few windy detours that point out some fascinating facts and make a couple of quick stops in the sentence fragment department to keep participants alert. Whatever you do, don't fall into a monotonous, medium-sized rhythm that anesthetizes your readers. 
And medium size means minuscule by Proust standards. Most sentences should have no more than 30 or 40 words. Your readers just don't have a very long attention span, and their feet tire easily. Back in Proust's day, email, TV, and social media didn't exist to distract the public, so I guess readers were a hardier bunch back then. They probably perambulated around town a bit more, too. If you're resolved to tame your inner Proust, I have a couple of suggestions. First, although Microsoft Word's grammar checker isn't known for its helpfulness, it does notice long sentences and sentence fragments. If Grammar Checker has filled your screen with squiggly lines, pay attention. It won't fix your sentences, but it will help you identify them. Second, if you read your sentence but can't remember what happened at the beginning, the sentence is too long. Have a Madeline, will you rest and refresh your memory? And after your tummy is full, you can chop up your sentence into manageable bits. The best way to cut down a super long sentence is to figure out your main points. When you investigate, you'll often find that your long sentences have two or three main points crammed into them. Break the sentence apart and highlight each main point with its own medium-sized sentence. Then deal with your leftover crumbs. Once you've mapped everything to its proper location on your tour, make sure your transitions work and that everything fits together seamlessly. Then you can put your feet up and rest. That segment originally appeared in Writer's Digest and was written by Bonnie Mills, who's been a copy editor since 1996. If there's one thing we can learn from the history of English words, it's that spelling is not what it used to be, because spelling didn't used to matter at all. Back in the early centuries of English, people pretty much spelled words however they wanted— There was no such thing as the right way to spell anything. If it got the point across, it was good enough. These days, as much as it might frustrate some of us, spelling has pretty much been standardized, and people are much less accustomed to simply sorting out what word they're looking at just from context. So if we want to communicate as clearly as possible, we do need to pay some attention to what letters we're using and in what order when writing. One fairly common pair of often confused words when it comes to spelling is cord, the length of rope, string, or other long thing, usually to tie something up or connect two things together, and chord, a set of musical notes played together, hopefully in harmony. Often, to help us remember how to spell words that sound the same and look very similar but mean different things, we can look at the history of those words, also called etymology, for clues. Unfortunately, in this case, the history of these two words is of absolutely no help whatsoever because the two words are actually very closely related. The word chord, the musical one, actually comes from the word accord, meaning agreement, harmony, and so on. You can think of accord as the opposite of discord. Accord went through two different linguistic processes on its way to chord. The first is called aphesis, which is the process of a word losing its initial, usually unstressed, vowel sound. Think about how many people use he looked round instead of he looked around as an example of aphesis. The word for the musical sound was first just chord, C-O-R-D, a chord minus the first A-C. 
The second linguistic process, and this is a very technical term, is confusion. Back when spelling didn't matter, people just threw an H into the word because there was already a word chord, C-H-O-R-D, in use at the time, which was itself just a different way of spelling the word we now insist gets spelled without an H, the one for a length of string or rope. The cause of this confusion is that chord, C-H-O-R-D, was often the word used to describe the string of a musical instrument, like a lyre or a harp, so it had a musical sense to it already. So to recap, the word we spell with an H now, to refer to the group of musical notes, was once spelled without an H because it was a shortening of a chord. But then it got the H added to it because people got confused with the other chord with an H, which was just a different way of spelling the word we now spell with no H to refer to a string or rope. And if you're confused, me too. Sometimes maybe it's a blessing that we have standardized spelling these days. So what we haven't come up with yet is an easy way to remember how to spell each one, so let's get to that now. Since we can't look to the history of the words to help us, because obviously people have been confused about these words for literally centuries, maybe we can just look at the letters themselves and the meanings of the words. Since chord with an H refers to a group of harmonious musical notes, why don't we just say that when you want to remember the difference between the spellings, remember how important harmony is in music. Without the H, you don't have a chord, you just have a boring piece of string or rope. And while we're at it, people often wonder whether the phrase to strike a chord has an H in it. Well, when you strike a chord with someone, what you've done is to connect with them somehow, which might make you think chord, C-O-R-D, is the way to go, is in a rope or string that ties people together. But remember, it's all about harmony. The phrase actually is an analogy to the musical chord, because when, say, a speaker strikes a chord with an audience, everyone is all together, in sync and in tune with one another, just like a choir singing together or a pleasing chord on a piano or a guitar. That segment was written by Ryan Paulson, who's an avid word nerd and co-host of the etymology podcast Lexitecture. And finally, I have a family-like story from Leslie. Hi, my name is Leslie Vernelson, and I grew up around Cleveland, and my family uses the word grumple. A grumple is any sort of collection of mainly fabric-based items that might be just sort of tossed on the floor. So most commonly, maybe a grumple of dirty clothes would be in the corner of someone's room, and I didn't know that that wasn't a real word until probably sometime late in high school. And it's spelled G-R-U-M-P-L-E. If you want to call with your family word story, your familect, you can leave a voicemail at 833-321-4-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. And if you're looking for a graduation gift for a student who will be heading off to college, check out my book, Grammar Girl Presents, The Ultimate Writing Guide for Students. It's a great, comprehensive book, and I promise it'll get a lot of use. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sems, and that's all. Thanks for listening. 